0: I want to speak to you during this hour on a topic that uh, I think is one of the most essential uh, issues of our day, and there is a teaching floating about, in fact it's spreading like wildfire in our churches, Uh, it's called Replacement Theology, and we're going to talk about that topic today, but let's have prayer together, then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for the privilege of assembling together in your house, with your people, to open the Word of God and to learn and to grow together. We thank you for uh, Pastor Kyle. We pray that you will give him a safe uh, uh, weekend away, and uh, if it is pleasing to you, a successful weekend as he's hunting and uh, be a blessing. And we thank you again for the ministry of this church to this community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of our former executive directors directors at the Friends of Israel. And if you're not familiar with the Friends of Israel, the Friends of Israel began in 1938, ten years, before Israel became a modern state. And uh, the reason the Friends of Israel began is that uh, because of the Holocaust, uh, there were some uh, Jewish people who were escaping to America, and they were coming here destitute. They had nothing, and they were being put in these internment camps, and uh, A man by the name of Victor Buxbazen, who became the first executive director of the Friends of Israel and some Christian businessmen and pastors in the Philadelphia area, uh, saw this need, and so they went out and they bought clothing and shoes and underwear and food and uh, medical supplies, and they began to minister to the Jewish people. Victor Buxbazen, by the way, was Jewish. man spoke eight or nine different languages, and uh, out of that uh, came the ministry today that is known as the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And one of our executive directors, uh, now retired, was a man by the name of Elwood McQuaid. And Dr. McQuaid has written a book called For the Love of Zion. And in that book he writes this, The wisdom and courage to discern the truth elude many these days, despite the fact that the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people, because A, they received it from God, that ought to settle it. But uh, if that's not enough, B, they received it from the United Nations in 1947, and C, they won it fighting wars of self defense. In spite of all of that, many Christian denominations refuse to support Israel. They turn their backs on the truth of the situation and buy into the big lie that Israel is actually the oppressive aggressor and the Arab. Behemoth, that surrounds Israel, is the helpless victim. So helpless are these Islamic Muslims that they must resort to blowing themselves up or pumping bullets into Israeli women and children in order to to, uh, redress the so-called evil that they are suffering under the so-called Israeli occupation. You may not be aware of it, but there is a growing schism, a growing divide in today's church over Israel. I have a question for you. Don't answer it verbally yet. I just want you to think about this. Which is it? Has Israel been rejected and replaced? Or have the Jewish people been regathered and the nation been reborn? Which is it? Replacement theology teaches that God has rejected the Jewish people, that there is no prophetic future for the nation of Israel. Dispensational theology teaches that God has gathered His people back to the land as He promised throughout the prophets. The nation has been reborn. Now this is an issue that has divided mainline denominations and evangelicals for years, but now many evangelicals and fundamentalists have come to the conclusion that the the mainline denominations were right all along and that the church has replaced Israel in the plan and program of God. And as one prominent Reformed teacher said, and I quote, Israel has no prophetic future whatsoever. End of quote. In an article by a man by the name of Brad Greenberg, Jewish man, this headline appeared, caught my attention. United Methodists call the creation of Israel the original sin and bring back divestment talks. Apparently I have to reread my Bible because the creation of Israel is not the original sin. His article goes on to say, tensions are reemerging between Jewish organizations and some mainline Protestant churches in the wake of a renewed drive for churches to divest from companies that do business with Israel. The United Methodist Church opened discussions last Friday on a resolution calling for divestment from Caterpillar, the tractor manufacturer. Now you might wonder, what what has Caterpillar done wrong? Well, they sold tractors and implements to Israel. And Israel had the audacity to use that equipment to build the fence, the wall, that keeps the suicide bombers out. How dare they build such a wall? Uh, Secondly, Israel used a bulldozer to bulldoze down the home of a terrorist who had killed a number of Israelis. And as you know, I probably are aware of this, Hamas pays them, pays their families uh, a lot of money, and so Israel said there'll be a price to pay. You, you will lose your home. Well, I don't want to just pick on the Methodist. In fact, let me just mention this. A lot of mainstream Methodists don't believe this, but this is what the hierarchy of the church believes. Let me move on to the Presbyterian Church USA. They had a caucus on the Middle East, and This is what came out of that caucus. This was their statement. The recent events in the Gaza Strip are yet another proof that the only solution to the ongoing conflict between Israel and the Palestinians is for Israel to end its illegal, violence-breeding occupation of Palestine. This is deliberate, cruel, collective punishment and indiscriminate terrorization of an entire population young and old, women, men and children, its blatant savagery, with such reckless behavior, Israel is hurling the whole region into chaos. Did you note in that statement from the Presbyterian Church USA who the terrorists are? The Israelis. And yet there is no condemnation whatsoever of Hamas or Hezbollah or any of the terrorist organizations. They just blame Israel. Well, enough with the Methodists and the Presbyterians. i you ready to get closer to home. Let's get closer to home. One of the things I do as a uh, representative for the Friends of Israel is to speak in churches. And I live in Arizona, and uh, I often call churches looking for a speaking engagement, and uh, I was looking through the yellow pages one day, and there I saw an ad from a Bible church, and they had a thought oh, Well, this must be a good sound church, so I called the pastor. He answered the phone, and I introduced myself, told him my name was Patrick Neff, that I served with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, and wanted to know if his church would be interested in having a focus on Israel Sunday. He said, who did you say you were with? I said, with the friends of Israel. He said, that's what I thought you said. He said, if you were with the friends of the Palestinians, we would invite you to come. But we want nothing to do with friends of Israel. I said, Pastor, may I ask you a question? He said, what's that? I said, do you believe in replacement theology? He said, what's that? I said, do you subscribe to the teaching that... God has rejected the Jew, that the church has then replaced Israel, and that Israel has no future in the plan of God. He said that's exactly what we believe and teach in our church. Replacement theology is spreading through Baptist churches and Bible churches today, uh, as it never has before. It is a very dangerous teaching, and I believe very unbiblical teaching. So which is it? Has Israel been rejected by God and replaced by the church? Or have the Jewish people been regathered to the land and has Israel been reborn? Where would we turn to find an answer to such a question? How about the Bible? How about we go to the Bible? That same pastor, by the way, that I was talking to told me that I had to understand that the Bible doesn't mean what it says. Exactly what he told me. I said, what do you do with Romans 11.26 when it says, all Israel will be saved? He said, you have to understand, all doesn't mean all, and Israel doesn't mean Israel. And I said, so you're telling me the Bible doesn't mean what it says? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Now as you're turning to this passage, even if you have never read it, you've probably sung about it. You know, the foot bone's connected to the ankle bone, and the ankle bone's connected to the leg bone. You, know, you all know that? I won't sing it for you. Be glad. But that well-known song comes from Ezekiel chapter 37, in which the prophet Ezekiel envisions a a valley of dry bones, scattered, sun-bleached, dried-out bones that have no hope of life or restoration. He envisions them coming to life at the end of the age. Ezekiel chapter 37 vividly demonstrates that God intends to fulfill the promise that he gives to Israel back in chapter 36 verses 22 through 38, regarding Israel's regathering and restoration to their God-given homeland in the last days. But how could this be? How could this happen? For 2,000 years, the Jewish people had been dispersed and scattered. We call it the diaspora. You've heard of the wandering Jew? Israel had been dead as a nation. She'd been deprived of her land. She had no king, no temple, no priesthood, no sacrificial system. She had no hope, no future, except for a far distant promise given by a prophet over 2,000 years ago. In verses 1 through 10, we have the imagery that is given to Ezekiel. And this vision is so vivid and detailed that as you read it, you can almost see the bones moving. You can about hear them rattling and coming to life as Ezekiel announces Israel's future rebirth and restoration. Yes. 37. Ezekiel 37. Now in verses 1 through 3, we have dry bones. Notice. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and sent me down in the middle of the valley... It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry, and he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And he answered, O oh Lord God, you know. God shows him this remarkable vision and then asks him an amazing question. Can these scattered, sun-bleached, dried-out bones live? Was there any potential, any possibility for life in such bones? Now, Ezekiel answers very, very carefully. He knew that humanly, the answer was, of course, no. But he also knew that nothing was impossible for God. And so his answer is well, he's kind of evasive. He says, uh, O oh Lord God, you know. I don't know, but you know. And then in verses 4 through 8, we move from these dry, dead, sun-bleached bones to rattling bones, beginning with verse 4. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to those bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. God says, Ezekiel, you see this congregation of sun-bleached, dried-out, scattered, dead bones. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to preach to them. I want you to proclaim my word to them. And as he does, he sees something remarkable. Skeletons coming together, bone to bone. The sinew begins to grow flesh suddenly and then we have living bones verses 9 and 10 then he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus says the Lord God come from the four winds O breath and breathe on these slain that they may live so I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army Breath, enters. it kind of reminds you of Adam, doesn't it? Breath of God came to life. Regathered people, a reborn nation represented here. Now, that's the imagery. Now we get to the tough part, the interpretation. What does this vision mean? You know, it's amazing how much darkness commentaries can shed on a portion of Scripture, especially if they don't believe what the text is saying. As the Jewish people looked back down the long quarters of time, they had little hope for restoration to the land or of rebirth as a nation. All they had, again, was this prophetic flicker in the darkness that someday God would orchestrate a return, a regathering, a reestablishment, and and rebirth. God had promised that one day he would transform a boneyard into a battalion. The interpretation is given in verses 11 through 14, and it's interesting, and this is what I love about this portion. God gives the interpretation. And it's amazing, you go to commentaries, and somehow they miss that. They come up with their own interpretations. Let's read verses 11 through 14. Then he said to me, Son of man, in other words, let me explain to you. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Graves here being a metaphor for the nations to which they've been scattered. And I will bring you (coughs) into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. One commentary I read said that this passage is talking about the preaching of the gospel. The people are dead and trespasses and sin, and that's true. And the preacher preaches the word of God, and they're raised to life. And that's what this passage is talking about. I don't think so. That might be a good application, but I don't think so. Is talking about Israel, as the text makes clear. And then, the sovereign God of history, through the events of World War I and especially World War II, God so orchestrated world events that his ancient covenant people began to return to their ancient God-given homeland. They had nowhere else to go. I was talking to an anti-Semitic guy. Once in a while, I'll get in a church and there'll be an anti-Semite there. This guy came up to me and says, why do the Jews insist on living where nobody wants them? I said, sir, where would you suggest they go? Back to Europe? They tried that. Do you remember what happened to them there? And on May the 14th, 1948, a miracle took place. Israel was reborn as a nation. Well, what are the implications? Now, I'm an old man, so you, you, you guys aren't going to, you're not going to know who I'm talking about. Forgive me. But For those of you who are a little older, how many remember Pat Boone? Have you ever heard the name Pat Boone? Well, he does a commercial for a bathtub now. But there was a day that Pat Boone was a pretty popular performer and uh, back in the, what, 50s and 60s, and in that era. And uh, Pat Boone, by the way, is an evangelical Christian and uh, he loves Israel. And when the movie Exodus came out, it was based on the very excellent novel by Leon Uris, uh, Exodus. And it tells the epic story of the Jewish people's valiant struggle in 1947 uh, to make Israel their home. And Pat Boone uh, wrote the song for the movie based on that book. And the first 10 words, he's writing it as if he were Jewish. And the first 10 words say it all. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. Unfortunately, there are many today who would disagree with those lyrics and Many people, including a growing number of Christians, believe that the land does not belong to the Jew. They say, well, it belongs to the Arabs. It belongs to the church. Certainly, it does not belong to the Jews. In fact, a few years ago, 154 evangelical Pastors and teachers, including R.C. Sproul, Bruce Waltke, and others, signed an open letter that was posted on the Knox Theological Seminary website, and it declared that the Jewish people have no special title to any land in the Middle East. Let me quote from the website. The entitlement of any one ethnic or religious group to territory in the Middle East called the Holy Land Cannot be supported by Scripture. In fact, the land promises specific to Israel in the Old Testament were all fulfilled under Joshua. End of quote. In a May June uh, two thousand and seven issue of the world's finest magazine, Israel My Glory, it's our publication. In fact, uh, I had I thought I had some shipped to the church, but we can't find them. Uh, we don't know if they're here or they didn't get shipped or they got lost on the way, but you were going to have free copies of Israel, My Glory today, but uh, uh, let me tell you how you can get this magazine. If you want this magazine, I know how you can get it free. Okay, I know how you can get it free for a year. You just go to our website, and there will be a place where you can sign up for Israel, My Glory, and it's www.foi.org. So, foi.org, and you can go there and get our magazine. It, it's filled with Prophetic teaching, biblical teaching, doctrinal teaching, and news of what is going on in Israel and and so forth. So it's a great magazine. But back in our May-June 2000 uh, issue, Bill Sutter, who was then our executive director, wrote this. Reports from many areas of our worldwide ministry indicate a resurgence of an errant teaching best described as replacement theology. Deviating from a literal interpretation of God's prophetic word, replacement theology holds that the church and Christians have replaced Israel and the Jewish people as the recipients of the promises that God made to Abraham. Now let me just interject something. We receive the blessings and the promises, but somehow we escape the curses. Isn't that interesting? Adherents contend, he writes, that Israel has no future in God's plan. The case for replacement theology is posted under the banner of Knox Theological Seminary and the Wittenberg Door Magazine and it denies God's plan for ancient uh, Israel, for the nation of Israel. I went to that website and uh, they've since taken it down, but here's what they said. I'm going to share some things with you. This is what they said. First of all, the entitlement of any one ethnic or religious group to territory in the Middle East called the Holy Land cannot be supported by Scripture. In other words, they're cutting Israel out of the promises that God has given to her. This assertion contradicts God's everlasting covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 13, Genesis chapter 15, and a host of other scriptures. When they say there's no support in the Bible, I want to ask what Bible are they reading? But secondly, and this, this just gets worse, almost humorous. Here's the second thing they said The promised messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ has been inaugurated. Now, here's what they mean by that. We are in the millennium now. This is the millennium. You see, it's not a literal millennium. It's a spiritual millennium. It's not a thousand-year kingdom as promised in Scripture. It's, it's a spiritual kingdom. We don't know how long it's going to last. It has nothing to do with Israel because Israel, well, she's under the curse of God. It's all about the church. This stance, this viewpoint spiritualizes Christ's kingdom and thereby denies his literal future reign of righteousness on earth for a thousand years. A prophetic truth that is repeated several times in the book of Revelation chapter 20. In fact, in just a few verses in Revelation chapter 20, it mentions six times that the kingdom will be 1,000 years. Now, you know, when I was raising my kids, they're all grown up now, now we have grandkids, but uh, when I was raising my kids... If I told them something once, yeah, they might pay attention. If I told them the second time, their ears started perking up. If I told them the third time, they knew I meant business. And if I had to tell them the fourth time, they knew they were in trouble. And if I had to tell them six times, the paddle was out. In fact, the paddle was out long before the sixth time. Why does God repeat something over and over and over again in the short text? He's highlighting, he's underscoring it. 1,000 years, literally. (coughs) If you believe the Bible means what it says, and I do. Here's the third thing they say. Furthermore, a day should not be anticipated in which Christ's kingdom will manifest Jewish distinctives, whether by its location in the land by its constituency, or by its ceremonial institutions and practices. In other words, all of the prophets that speak of a millennial temple, a revived sacrificial system, none of that's going to happen. What have they just done? Well, they have taken teaching from the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Zechariah and elsewhere, and have stripped Israel of God's promises and uh, have painted Israel as the bad guy in the Middle East, as the aggressor. Here's the fourth thing they said. (coughs) Lamentably, bad Christian theology, and by that they're talking about dispensationalism, those who hold the Bible to be literal, historical, grammatical as they interpret it, lamentably, bad Christian theology is today... attributing to secular Israel a divine mandate to conquer and hold Palestine with the consequence that the Palestinian people are marginalized and regarded as virtual Canaanites. Bill Sutter responded to that charge by saying such an outrageous charge completely disregards tiny Israel's continuing struggle for survival in the midst of a huge, hostile Arab and Islamic world bent on its destruction." Bill continues, Bill Sutter, proponents of replacement theology ignore God's miraculous preservation of the Jewish people over the millennia, his unseen hand in the birth of the modern state of Israel in 1948, and his preservation of that state against all odds. We, the Friends of Israel, share no common ground with the spiritualizing, allegorizing, and denying of God's prophetic word, all of which characterizes replacement theology. That's why throughout all areas of our ministry we are strengthening our efforts to teach God's word literally, that is dispensationally by affirming that the church and Israel are distinct entities in God's plan with much yet to be fulfilled in national Israel. A number of years ago this is an old message for me, I've used it a lot. Years ago I was speaking at a conference, a prophecy conference in Phoenix, and brought this very message, and a young man came up to me afterwards, and he said, well, I I can see what you're saying, but I really don't think it makes any difference what you believe. He said, you know, uh, R.C. Sproul is a good man, and he is, I don't disagree with that, and John MacArthur is a good man, and they disagree on this issue, and yet they're friends, so I don't really think it makes any difference. I said, well, I understand your point, but I respectfully disagree. Let me share with you why. Number one, it may not matter to you as a Gentile Christian, but if you were Jewish, it would matter a lot because you have just robbed the Jew of every single promise God has given to Israel. Secondly, What concerns me is how they get to this whole concept of replacement theology. It has to do with hermeneutics, the science of interpreting the Bible. When you begin to allegorize scripture, when you begin to say, you know, the text really doesn't mean that, it has a mystical meaning, a spiritual meaning, it doesn't really mean that, you can get in big trouble. It put you on a slippery slope. I lived uh, in Michigan, pastored in Michigan for 32 years. Last church I was at was uh, Constantine, Michigan, where uh, we spent 25 and a half years before starting ministry with the Friends of Israel. And in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the hippest fastest-growing, largest church was called Mars Hill. It was thriving. People were, people were leaving the other churches. They were all going to Mars Hill. On one particular weekend, I'm going to back up tell you a story before I finish this story. One of the events that we do in Michigan, and I still have the privilege of returning for this each year in May, is following a prophecy conference in Grand Rapids. We then do an Honor Israel Night, and I remember the very first one Ruth and I went to, and uh, there were about 90 people showed up. We were so disappointed. Here we were in the Bible Belt, and just so little interest in in Israel and the Jewish people, and there was a Jewish woman there, and her name is Cheryl, wonderful uh, woman, become very good friends, and Cheryl came up to Ruth and I, and she said, I want to apologize because there are only about five Jewish people that came tonight. And Ruth said, well, Cheryl, let me apologize because there are only about 85 Christians that came tonight. So let me apologize to you that Christians didn't turn out to honor Israel, support Israel. Cheryl said, I'm going to promise you something. She said, next year, I'm going to make certain there are a lot of Jewish people here. She went out and started visiting rabbis. She, she, she started promoting it. And Let me tell you, next year, there were probably 30 or 40 Jewish people that came. About the same number of Christians. <coughs> so, the next year, Cheryl decided, you know, I've I recruited a lot of Jewish people to come. I'm going to start working on the Christians. So, she, she starts visiting churches and asking them if they would promote this, if they would advertise it. And, and on one Sunday... She ends up at Mars Hill. The associate pastor was speaking. We'll talk about the senior pastor in a moment. The associate pastor was speaking, and he was a graduate of Fuller Seminary. And he took some obscure text from the book of Isaiah, about two trees, I think it was a millennial text, but he took this, this verse out of context, And he announced that the one tree represented Israel, and the other tree represented the Palestinians. And he spent the rest of his message attacking Israel for the way Israel is occupying and mistreating and so forth the Palestinians. Cheryl's son, serving in the IDF. I don't know how Cheryl could stand through... Or sit, and not just get up and leave. But she stayed through it all, and she was in tears as she was sharing with us what this pastor said. And I, I couldn't believe it, so I got on their website and listened to his message. It was worse than she said. He started out by saying, the book of Isaiah was written by more than one author over several hundred years. And then he takes a text uses it as a pretext, takes it out of context, rather than interpreting it literally, he allegorizes it, making it say something it doesn't say, and then he spends his time attacking the Jewish people in Israel. I was so outraged, I wrote him a letter. I said, pastor, having been a pastor, it it brings me no delight to criticize another pastor, but you had at least three things wrong in your message. Number one, the, uh, the idea of Isaiah being written by two different Isaiahs, that was debunked years ago. I said, any study Bible will tell you that. I said, number two, you were wrong to take a verse out of context and make it say what it didn't say. And thirdly, you are wrong to attack Israel. And one of the things he said in his message was, the only reason Israel won the War of Independence was because she was so well armed. If you know anything about that war, Israel had antiquated arms, and many of the people fought with shovels and pitchforks and rakes because they didn't have enough weapons to go around. I said, you don't know your history. And I said, you had a Jewish woman in your audience that Sunday, and you owe her and the Jewish community of Grand Rapids an apology. Never heard back from him. My colleague, Tim Munger, also wrote him a letter. And among the things he said is you had an unsafe Jewish woman come to your services. She should have heard of the gospel, but instead, you preached poison and have done irreparable harm. He never heard anything from the pastor either. Now, the senior pastor of that church, who went to the same seminary, where they were taught this hermeneutical method of interpreting the Bible, wrote a book. His name was Rob Bell. And the book he wrote is called Love Wins. And in that book he says, There's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as eternal punishment. Because love wins. In the end, it's just love, love, love. Boy, doesn't that feel good? There's only one problem with it. It's wrong. It's dead wrong. How did he come to that conclusion? Well, you see, when you begin to allegorize, you can make the Bible say anything you want to. It no longer means what it says. There's a third problem I have with replacement theology, and it's this. It attacks the character of God. Dear ones, you better hope those who hold a replacement theology are wrong. Because if God can go back on his promises to Israel, what makes you think he can't go back on his promises to you? If God can break one covenant, why can't he break another? I mean, my God cannot lie. And he has made promise after promise after promise after promise to the Jewish people that he would bring them back to their homeland, that the nation would be reborn, and that Jesus Christ would return and establish A kingdom, a literal Davidic kingdom. All of which replacement theology denies. Question is, how could anyone believe it? And yet, it is spreading across our churches like crazy. Well, I think I'm done a little early, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask some questions, and I'll try to answer them. Yes, sir. Here's what's happening, yes, yeah. here's what's happening uh, across the land. There has been a resurgence of Reformed teaching, and I've read Calvin's Institutes. Well, let me tell you, this, this new, I call it the new strain of Reformed teaching, it, it, it is so extreme it makes Calvin look like you know, a pretty balanced guy, but it is so, it's way beyond Calvin. And they build a theological system. And they take this system, and they make Scripture conform to their system. And part of their system is, is that the Jews killed Christ, God rejected the Jews, therefore, the church has replaced Israel. God's through with Israel. Incidentally, that was the very theology that permeated Europe and Germany right before the Holocaust. The people were taught in their churches that God was disgusted with the Jew, that God hated the Jews, and so the people, when the Holocaust began, See any problem with that? Jews are just getting what they deserve. They're an abhorrent people. They committed deicide. I'm not saying that all people who hold to replacement theology are anti-Semites. What I'm saying is anti-reformed uh, theology and uh, uh, replacement theology, which is uh, an element of reformed theology, uh leads to anti-Semitism. It leads to anti-Semitism. So that's what we're seeing. You know, back, when, back in the old days when uh, I was in Bible college, you know, you, you go into college and you start studying the Bible and theology and you're introduced to Calvinism and Arminianism. And, you know, you get all this stuff. and There are many of us who could accept a Calvinistic view of salvation but we maintained a dispensational view of the church, ecclesiology, and eschatology. But it seems today it's all one package. You, you just take it all. And uh, so many of these uh, young, they call them young, angry, and reformed. And they're militant. If they were as aggressive about evangelism as they were about promoting extreme Calvinism, And replacement theology, my, we'd win the world. So that's what's happened. That's what's happened. Anybody else? Uh, Probably the younger one does, Andy. Uh, Yeah, Uh, his dad wouldn't. His dad wouldn't. Uh, he's far removed from many things that his dad would believe. Um, R.C. Sproul uh, would believe in replacement theology. And, you know, I've read some of Sproul's books, and some of them are great. Some of them are a blessing. Uh, and yet, uh, he, because of his reformed leanings, uh, believes in... Uh, <clears throat> in fact, he pretty much he's a preterist. He basically says the book of Revelation has already happened. Happened during the first 70 years of church history. That's when the tribulation was. Nero was the Antichrist. That's the view they take, and the church has replaced Israel. So I'm not saying that all people who hold to this view, some of them are brothers. Some of those you know, I have great respect for, but here is an element of their theology, it's just poison. You will find that most in the reform movement hold to replacement theology. It's certainly the teaching of the Catholic Church. And remember, when the reformers came out of Rome, they brought with them certain unscriptural teachings, such as infant baptism. Let me me tell you something. If you were to take a new believer, put him on an island, and give them only a Bible, and leave them there for a year, there's two things they would never believe. First of all, they would never believe in infant baptism. You don't get that from the Bible. It's just not there. Anybody here know who M.R.D. Hahn was? M.R.D. Hahn founded the radio Bible class, Our Daily Bread. M.R.D. Hahn was a drunken doctor, medical doctor. He had a marvelous conversion. And he went to a reform seminary, Holland, Michigan. Graduated, became a reform pastor. And during his first year of ministry, it was time to baptize babies. And so he began to study the New Testament, trying to find a text for his sermon. And he couldn't find one. So he called his fellow Reformed pastors, and he said, you know, Sunday's coming, I can't find a text. What text are you going to be using? Well, a couple of them gave him text, and he thought, this ain't got a thing to do with infant baptism. Another pastor was a little more honest, he said, well, there really isn't any scripture that we base this on, it's just tradition, just what we do. Well, Dehan began to study the topic Next thing you know, he's baptizing believers instead of babies. They kicked him out of the Reformed Church. He founded the radio Bible class, thank God, and our daily bread and all of that. But that's one teaching that that new believer on the island would never find. Secondly, replacement theology. You take a new believer, put him on an island, give him only a Bible for a year, there's no possible way. You have to go to seminary to learn this stuff. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so my question would be: as believers, we see all these books written by all these men and women. Yes. And stay away from the women. But anyway. <laughs> Yes. Excellent question. Was it not the Bereans who searched the scriptures daily to see if the things they were being taught were in accordance with the scriptures? I hope, I I used to tell, when I was pastor, I used to tell my congregation, don't you believe it just because I said, check me by the book. In fact, you know, I, I, Back in the old days, people used to turn the pages. People used to follow. They don't do that anymore. Like it's too much work to open the Bible. Let me tell you something. Check. I don't care who it is. When you read a book, maybe by your favorite, I mean, I'm fallible. I could have a sincere view that could be totally wrong. So we have to check it with the Word of God. And you do that to your own pastor, you do it to books that you read. Authors that you respect. Uh, I was telling someone the other day, uh, it it was you, we were talking about John MacArthur. I love John MacArthur, but I'll tell you, there are a couple of things I just don't agree with. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe he's wrong, but I check what he teaches with the Bible. And he would want me to do that. So I don't care who it is. We need to check it. What does the scripture say? Does this line up with scripture? Does that that answer your question? Anybody else? Got one minute. Yes. Well, it's been taught, I mean, it's been taught since uh, the second or third century, Augustine uh, popularized it. The reformers, That uh, was the position of the Roman Catholic Church. The reformers taught it. And it kind of died out. It just kind of, but in, in the last 20 years, there's been a resurgence of it. And it's just spreading like wildfire. And uh, let me just close with this. I went to a, I went to a conference a few years ago, and uh, there was a prominent reform teacher. And the question was asked. How do you ensure that your children become Christians? Good question, right? This during a panel discussion. And this was the answer that Reformed leader gave. He said, well, he said, my wife and I have a number of children. I think I had seven or eight children. And he said, when we find out my wife is expecting, he said, we ask God to regenerate the child in the womb. Or is that in the Bible? Oh, he had the verse. He had a verse. Remember when Elizabeth entered Mary's presence and John leapt in the womb? That was his verse. That's a stretch. And then he says, after that we have the child, the infant, baptized, and then we just don't worry about it after that. Now, friends, that's fatalism. That's fatalism. By the way, I don't believe children are regenerated in the womb. I believe they're regenerated when they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And there are a lot of people in the Reformed movement who think because they're regenerated in the womb, and they're baptized as a baby, that they're just fine. And they've never experienced the new birth. I know I lived in Grand Rapids. I was surrounded by that teaching. I worked with people who believed that. Well, replacement theology. Every church needs to be aware of it because I've been in so many churches where someone has come in and next thing you know they become a Bible teacher and they start teaching this stuff. And then the church is on the verge of a split. So know what you believe about Israel. It's very essential, very important. Time is up and gone. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together. I ask your blessing upon the word that has been shared and upon the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.